Here we are, it is Christmas Eve, and there's so much to celebrate. So much Christmas to celebrate, we'll do that at the end of the show. If you stick around all the way until the end, I have a little Christmas surprise for you. Not like Bill Clinton's Christmas surprises, like an actual Christmas surprise for you. We'll be discussing in just a few moments some things that I hate, plus... Plus, the establishment is going absolutely insane over Ted Cruz, and I have to discuss that at length. I am Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. Tend to demonize people who don't care about your feelings. Alrighty, so we begin today with the man with the wildest hair in the West, David Brock. David Brock is the head of Media Matters. Uh, he is a former right-wing guy. He, he tried to write a book about Hillary Clinton that was, that was an anti-Hillary Clinton book. After it bombed, he realized that he'd make more money on the left. And, uh, and David Brock also felt not accepted because he's a very gay guy, and so he felt not, not accepted by the Republican Party, and he is famous for his alleged severe drug habit. In any case, he is one of Hillary Clinton's closest confidants. She helped start Media Matters specifically as an organization to defend her. And I just have to start with this clip because this clip is so hysterically funny. Here's David Brock discussing Donald Trump, and this is, we're now on day four of, of Schlonggate. And, uh, and Donald, as you recall, Donald Trump said that Barack Obama schlonged Hillary in 2008 and the entire world went insane because no schlong must ever come near to Hillary Clinton. Uh, and, and so David Brock has now, has now come up with his deep analysis of, of Schlonggate 2015. What we're going to see and what we got a taste of last night was the misogynistic attacks on Hillary Clinton, which also had a racial appeal as well. Uh, the, the idea of a, a black rapist uh, basically using the schlong to defeat Hillary. <laughs> but I think that's what that really was about. You think that there yes. is a deeply right. racial, yes. racial animus yes. and, and, and the crowd violent loved it. Subtext. We can't like, say that enough. And the crowd loved it. We can't say that. <laughs> and this is so insane. Is there anyone who heard this? Like, I mean, if you watch those Trump comments, were you thinking, oh, black guys raping a white woman? That's what this is. Ground up birth of a nation. Let's all get our sheets and go all black hunting. Like, what? 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 <laughs> what is he talking about? Like, I understand that David Brock may or may not be obsessed with schlong, but this has nothing to do with anything at this point. It's truly amazing. But this is actually part of the left wing pitch now. So the left wing pitch was that we can't get Donald Trump on being a racist because no one really thinks Donald Trump is that racist. They just kind of think that Donald Trump is a loudmouth because Donald Trump is kind of a loudmouth. So what the left instead has done is they have said that Donald Trump is, in fact, that his supporters are crazy white supremacist racists. So Lawrence O'Donnell, who you want to know how left-wing Hollywood is, folks. This is something nobody knows. Here, here's how left-wing Hollywood is. Apparently, Lawrence O'Donnell, who now does a, a show called The Last Word on MSNBC that I've only heard of and because I'm a professional and no one else has ever seen. It's sort of a mythical show that exists in the shadows and comes out once in a while. Lawrence O'Donnell, on his show, uh, he, he's a vastly left-wing dude. Who do you think wrote the right-wing dialogue on the West Wing? Lawrence O'Donnell. He was the actual designated writer to write the right-wing dialogue on the West Wing, which shows you where Hollywood is. So Lawrence O'Donnell, anyway, he, uh, he says that it, all you have to know about Trump is that Trump is supported by the white supremacists. Here's Lawrence O'Donnell from MSNBC. Took away the white supremacists from, the, from Donald Trump's support base. If you took away all of the people who believe President Obama is not a legal citizen of the United States. If you took away the people who believe Barack Obama is a Muslim, Donald Trump would be polling in single digits. He would not be a factor in this presidential campaign and would soon be going the way of Bobby Jindal and Lindsey Graham. But instead, the haters of the president, the believers of lies, 
have made Donald Trump the front runner. Oh, it's the haters. It's the haters. And he's Taylor Swift over here. Right? To, to all you haters, listen to his sick beat. So it's, it's just, it, it, the whole thing is absurd. So he, there it is. Donald Trump is only supported by white supremacists. And of course, all of, the, all of the minorities in the party tend to support him also, actually. He has disproportionate shares of black support, does Donald Trump. And he has 39% of the votes. So unless you're going to say that, I guess this is the point, that Republicans are all vicious racists who secretly burn crosses on people's lawns in the middle of the night and beat up Muslims and all this kind of stuff. This is what the left wants to portray Donald Trump and his supporters as. And they've extended it out from Donald Trump. Chris Matthews, who, as I say every time I mention Chris Matthews, rolls out of bed and directly onto set. He actually has a cot that's just off set, and he sleeps in his suit, and he doesn't do his hair, and he just sort of rolls off the set, and it rolls onto set, and then he, and he's not fully awake. So he says, this is worse. Chris Matthews on MSC. And he, he says that, that Ted Cruz, too, is another one of these insane white supremacists, white people, Hispanic. And, and as you can see from the still of, of Chris Matthews, <laughs> Chris Matthews apparently hit the scotch a little bit too hard the previous night. So here we go with Chris Matthews. It really is scary to most moderates and progressives that, that Cruz is scarier than Trump. And yeah, uh, that, that would be a frightening prospect to realize. If we weren't talking about Trump, we'd be talking about the horror of this country possibly being led by Cruz. Do you know him? Have you ever met Cruz? I have not. I well, don't when know. When you do, you'll know what I'm talking about. Well, I mean, um, I've, I've, seen, I've seen all of his comments. I follow him, obviously, a lot throughout the campaign. But nobody trip. likes him. No one who knows him likes him. His white people, if you will, working white people, whatever that category gets defined as, are so angry, especially the very religious people, that they're willing to put somebody in there who's a complete enemy of the state. He's an enemy of the state. He's a traitor. Ted Cruz is a traitor now. So it's, it's all white supremacists. Nobody likes him. He's Hitler he, without the mustache and with a bit of Hispanic blood and also no relation or, or any similarity to Hitler. But except for that, he's totally like Hitler. And nobody likes him except for the 40% of Iowa voters and the 24% of Republican voters nationally. Nobody likes him. And also, he's just like Trump. So the entire Republican base is just filled with white supremacists. It's amazing how this works, by the way. All of the black supremacists of Black Lives Matter their slogan inherently is black supremacist, right? Only black lives matter, not other lives. They are all wonderful, generous, diverse, multicultural people. But all of the white folks who support Ted Cruz and just want the government out of our business, they're all a bunch of racists. Now, all of this would not be noteworthy because it's coming from leftists, and this has been their constant refrain for as long as I've been alive, certainly. I think that it's probably been the refrain longer than that. If you go back to Goldwater versus LBJ, they were doing the same routine, but Certainly, since I've been alive, the refrain has been Republicans are whites. They're, it's angry white men. It's the falling down crowd. For anybody who ever saw that movie with Michael Douglas, have you ever seen this movie? Pretty good movie, but, it's, but the entire premise of the movie is that there's, there are these angry white men who are the silent majority in America and eventually are going to go off and just nuke things, basically. And, and so this is, this is how they see it. Okay, the left has always seen us this way. This is why Barack Obama thinks every time there's a criticism of him, it is a criticism of him personally. It's because of the level of melanin in his skin or because we don't think he's a citizen or some such stupid crap like that. Okay, all of that would not be bothersome. What is bothersome is that there are folks on the right now doing the same routine. And these folks on the right doing the same routine are people at the Wall Street Journal and people at National Review and a lot of these people I respect, and I think they're good thinkers. But there is an elitism that now dominates among some members of the Republican Party that I, I truly find off-putting. As a member of the elite, okay, by any standard, I'm a member of the quote-unquote elite. I grew up in Los Angeles. I'm a Jew from Los Angeles who's a conservative who went to a private high school, UCLA, and then Harvard Law School. Okay, I scored 176 out of 180 on my LSAT. 
Okay, I'm 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 the I'm I'm in the top one percent of income earners. Like I by any measure, I am a member of the elite. I find this elitism off-putting because the fact is that the, for me, the purpose of government is to keep everyone else out of my business. And so I don't believe that there's this group of wise and prescient rulers who know better than we do. I remember when I was first at Harvard Law School, we we met in in this giant. It was a Widener Hall. We we met at this this giant library. Uh, they had all of the, the first-year Harvard students meet here. And it was 500 students, each Harvard class of 500 students. And it looks like something out of Harry Potter. I mean, the hall is magnificent, and it's all mahogany and carvings and busts of people you've never heard of. And, it's, and it really is quite grand. And you're sitting there, and Elena Kagan, now a justice on the Supreme Court, was the dean at the time. And she walks out in front of this whole crowd, and she says, don't worry, you've made it. The competition is over. You got in. No matter what happens, you'll have a job. We dominate the Supreme Court. We dominate the Senate. We, dem- we, we The last several presidents have all been from Harvard. Bush went to Harvard Business School, and Obama went to Harvard Law School. Bill was a Yaley. But before that, you had a bunch of people who were from Harvard as well. And, and she says, basically, you've got it made, and you just have to decide. Since you are going to basically be the rulers of the universe, you have to decide how you are going to rule. Pretty lofty stuff for a bunch of people who are 22 years old. For me, I was 20. I was the second youngest kid in the class pretty lofty stuff for a bunch of people who have no moral experience and no real life experience as a general rule. But, and by the way, lofty stuff for anybody because nobody should have that kind of control, right? The whole idea of American republicanism, small r, is the idea that the people should not be dominated by a group of upper-class elitists who think that they're a bunch of of nudniks and and idiots and fools. But there is this feeling that is now coming over the self-styled elite in the Republican Party, as well as the, the, the Democratic elite we've already known about. They scorn their own base. They always think that people who vote for them are idiots, but they can use them to get ahead. People in the Republican Party have started to treat their base like this. Brett Stevens is a columnist for the Wall Street Journal. And I generally really like Brett Stevens' stuff. I think he's a very good writer. I think he's a talented guy, uh, particularly on foreign policy. But he wrote one of the, truly one of the worst columns that I have ever read. And he came out a couple of days ago, and it's worth going through at length because it is a window into the mind of so many people in the upper echelon Republican Party. I talked a few days ago on this broadcast about how Bill Kristol over at the Weekly Standard was already talking. If Trump gets the nomination, what do we call our new third party? And I was saying, this is amazing, because these are the same people saying Trump wouldn't take the, the, the allegiance pledge, the loyalty pledge, and so Trump has to be cast out. But now we won't do it because, we're the, because we are the great ones. We are, we are the ones who get to decide. And if it's not going to be us deciding... Nobody decides. If somebody else is going to play with the football, we take the football, and we don't just take it home. We take a knife, and we stab that football. We let all of the air out of it, right? We're like my cousin at a, at a baseball game from 2002, and their beach ball's going around. He takes the beach ball. This is in Chicago. He takes the beach ball. He takes a pen, stabs the beach ball, and says, take that crap back to California. You know, th- th- that's basically how the establishment is now about the party. So Brett Stevens writes in the Wall Street Journal, quote, let us now pledge to elect Hillary Clinton as the 45th president of the United States. Let's skip the petty dramas of primaries and caucuses, the debate histrionics, the sour spectacle of the convention in Cleveland. Let's fast forward past that sinking October feeling when we belatedly realize we're going to lose and lose badly. Let's do this because it's what we want. Maybe secretly, maybe unconsciously, but desperately. We want four and probably eight more years of cable news neuralgia. We want to drive ourselves to work as Mark Levin or Laura Ingram scratch our ideological itches until they bleed a little. We want the refiner's fire that is our righteous indignation at a country we claim no longer to recognize, ruled by imposters and overrun by foreigners. 
This is very cynical stuff, right? He's saying that everybody in the base who likes Trump or Cruz is somebody who wants to lose to Hillary Clinton. And not only that, we enjoy the masochism. We enjoy the, 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 the masochism of having a Democrat as president and Democrats running the show. That's what we really like. What we want is to elect the bad guys so that we can complain about it, so we can bitch about it. That's basically Brett Stevens' point. This is such stupidity. He is saying, and people in his party are saying, we're going to start our own third party if Trump is the nominee, and he's accusing the Trump supporters of wanting to get Hillary elected. You can't have it both ways. Either you call for the party to unify around the nominee, or you're calling for Hillary to be elected. Right now, let's be fair about one other thing, which is that there are good reasons why you might have a higher priority than defeating Hillary Clinton at the ballot box. If, for example, you think the Republican Party has been so drilled through with corruption and nastiness that it has, to, it has to be cleansed, there has to be a shift in the way the party is run. And so if it takes a loss to Hillary Clinton to purify the party so that in four years we can come back and have a legitimate, legitimately conservative party, it's an argument I have some sympathy for. I, I, have, I ultimately disagree with it. But that's at least a rationale. But this idea that people are just stupidly throwing up their hands and saying, more Democrats, it's so nasty and untrue. And then he goes on to say, Brett Stevens does, that Ted Cruz is a part of this. It's not just Trump. right? So you thought that it was just scorn for Donald Trump. No, it turns out it's not just scorn for Donald Trump. He also hates Cruz. The Wall Street Journal, by the way, despises Ted Cruz, despises Ted Cruz. And Cruz pointed this out, which makes the Wall Street Journal despise them even more. I'll tell you, I submitted a piece to the Wall Street Journal last week in which I did a very basic statistical analysis. And I said, if you don't want Trump to be the nominee, Cruz is probably your second best bet. So why isn't the establishment getting behind Cruz? Because they don't like Cruz. They actually like Cruz less than they like Trump. The Wall Street Journal turned it down. Maybe they didn't want it because they disagreed with the premise. Maybe they didn't want it because it didn't fit their needs. Whatever it was, they then ran this piece by, by Brett Stevens about how Ted Cruz is, quote, happy to be on any side of an issue so long as he can paint himself as a real Republican. The implicit goal here being the automatic excommunication of anyone who disagrees with him. Naturally, he's rising. Okay, the, the stunning cynicism of this. This entire column says, if you agree with Cruz or Trump, then you're automatically excommunicated because you disagree with us. And then he's accusing Cruz of the same thing. Cruz is legitimately the most conservative candidate in this race. By any measure, by any measure, Ted Cruz is the most conservative candidate in this race. But that's not good enough for Brett Stevens. He says that if you vote for Cruz, it's because you want Hillary to win. And then they go even, this goes even further. And this is the craziness, okay? If you're a moderate in the Republican Party, it doesn't even matter what the question is. You already know the answer. The answer is going to be more moderation. John McCain wasn't moderate enough. That's why he lost. Mitt Romney wasn't moderate enough. That's why he lost. Okay, you guys picked Romney. I opposed Romney. I wrote a column in January of 2012 called No on Mitt Romney. That was the name of the column. And the reason I said that is because I said no one whose chief accomplishment in office is Obamacare can run against a guy whose chief accomplishment in office is Obamacare. Right? You're going to lose. Maybe you'll lose with somebody else too. But you can't run as a Republican on Romney care and expect people to see the contrast. It's just stupid and silly. Right? But we ran him anyway. But here's, but here's what the establishment takes away from that. So you know, as a member of sort of the grassroots conservative base, I think the reason Romney lost is because Romney did not take the fight to President Obama. I think he was passive. I think that he tried to paint Obama as incompetent rather than ill-intentioned. I think that he left Obama basically unscathed throughout the race, and still it was a relatively close race. If he had really taken out the hatchet for Obama, I think things would have been different. In 2008, I know things would have been different if John McCain had hit President Obama with Jeremiah Wright one week out of the gate instead of waiting for one week before the election when it was too late to do anything. But here's what the establishment takes away from Mitt Romney's defeat. Quote, 
If the lesson of Mitt Romney's predictable loss in 2012 was that it's bad politics to tell America's fastest-growing ethnic group that some of their relatives should self-deport, or to castigate 47% of the country as a bunch of moochers, well, so what? Abraham Lincoln once said, if you would win a man to your cause, first convince him that you are his sincere friend. Whatever. Now the party of Lincoln has as its frontrunner an insult machine whose political business is to tell Mexicans, Muslims, physically impaired journalists, astute Jewish negotiators, and others who cross his sullen gaze that he has no use for them or their political correctness. Okay, put aside his critique of Trump. Focus in on what, why he says Romney lost. He says Romney lost because of self-deportation and because of his 47% comments. Mitt Romney did not lose because of self-deportation. Mitt Romney would have had to win 73% of the Hispanic vote in order to beat Barack Obama in the 2012 election. He didn't lose because of self-deportation. He lost because blue-collar whites did not show up to vote for him and because blacks showed up in mass numbers to vote for President Obama far more than their demographic share of the United States population. As far as this castigating 47% of the country is a bunch of moochers, I remember when this happened, and the first thing I thought is, he should double down on it. Why in the world is he running from it? What Trump is showing people is you don't run even from your mistakes, but that wasn't even a mistake. The fact is, if you don't want to be counted among the people dependent on government, don't be dependent on government. If you don't want to be counted among people who vote for a bigger government for your own enrichment, then don't do it. The fact is a high percentage of Americans will vote for Hillary Clinton no matter how corrupt she is. Right now, polls show Bernie Sanders, a socialist, has 45% of the vote. In every poll, 45% of the vote. Okay, so don't tell me that Mitt Romney was, he wasn't. And by the way, the idea that you alienate people with this language, who do you think coined the term welfare queen? It was Ronald Reagan. It was Ronald Reagan who talked about welfare queens who were taking Americans' money and using it on their Cadillacs as opposed to being poor. Right, so this idea that harsh language is what, is what causes loss, but you can only come to this, con how you come up with the notion that Mitt Romney, the most milquetoast candidate the Republicans maybe have ever run, that he was too harsh and that's why he lost? You have to find a way to blame the base for something, I guess, since we didn't, we didn't want Romney in the first place. We came out for him anyway. We did our job. You guys didn't do your job, and you picked him. And then you're going to turn around and blast us for it? Now, Brett Stevens opposed Romney, but he opposed everybody. I mean, if you look back at his columns in 2012, he opposed everyone. So you can't say, well, you know, he, he was specifically anti-Romney. He, he was anti-everybody. He basically said Romney was the best of the, of the worst, essentially. And by the way, when you quote Lincoln, and you, and you quote Lincoln saying that if you would win a man to your cause, first convince him you're his sincere friend, how well did it work for Lincoln? Let's be straight about Lincoln for a second. Lincoln said a lot of stuff. Okay, Lincoln then won 39.8% of the vote in, in the 1816 election. And in 1864, half the country couldn't vote because they were busy seceding. Right? So they, 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 talking about convincing people that you're on their side and that you're his sincere friend, Lincoln was unsuccessful enough at that that half the country tried to kill the other half of the country. So, no. That's not to say Lincoln was wrong. It is to say that politics is a blood sport. And to pretend that it's anything else and that it's all about the friendly appeal. Mitt Romney tried the friendly appeal, so did John McCain. Don't you remember, my friends? We tried this routine. Anybody who disagrees with Brett Stevens, though, wants to lose. It's amazing. He says, What we won't accept is a standard bearer whose convictions or personality might conceivably appeal to those wavering voters who usually decide elections in this country. Of all the reasons to dislike Mr. Rubio, surely the greatest is that he's the only Republican who consistently upholds Mrs. Clinton, so he thinks the only reason that we don't like Rubio is because Rubio would win. I don't think Rubio would win. I don't think Rubio would win. I've said this before. I don't see who is the voting base that, Ru that Rubio draws that Romney didn't. Can anyone name this base? 
Does anyone really think that, that Marco Rubio is going to draw a significantly bigger chunk of the Hispanic population to the point where he wins the election based on that? What are the blue-collar voters that Marco Rubio is going to drive to the polls? Everybody's looking at these polls right now and saying, well, Marco Rubio is running competitive with Hillary Clinton, and Donald Trump is like, it's like 47-40 Hillary over Trump and 45-44 Hillary over Rubio or 44-44, they're tied. Okay, the reason for that, folks, is because the media, have you seen anything but Trump on TV? Anything? The reason Trump's at 40 is because they've hit him with everything, including the kitchen sink. The reason that Marco Rubio's at 45 is because nobody knows who he is. He's the handsome guy with the, with the funny haircut who is, who's well-spoken but has a kind of fear behind his eyes. That's the guy who we're all talking about. Okay, so, but this is how the establishment feels about the base. The establishment feels that the base are the bad guys. The base are the people who are driving us to defeat. And it really is, it makes me a little sick to my stomach because the fact is that the only way you're ever going to win elections in this country is to bridge that divide. And every time the, the base says, okay, well, here's somebody we like, the establishment tries to clock them. By the way, the establishment tried to clock them over Marco Rubio. Everybody forgets about this, but Marco Rubio was a Tea Party guy. The establishment backed Charlie Crist, who went on to become an independent and then a Democrat. He'll make his way eventually to the Green Party and then the Reform Party. He's running out of parties. But the establishment did not back him. Right? The Tea Party backed Ted Cruz over the, over the guy who was lieutenant governor of Texas at the time, David Dewhurst. And the establishment liked Dewhurst. Cruz has become a powerful force in American politics. Dewhurst, nobody's really heard of him again. And they hate them for that. For all the talk about how the Tea Party is the death of the party, I'll tell you what's the death of the party. When you hate your own base. When you hate your own base, that is the death of the party. You cannot, it, it's amazing. They'll say, oh, you're slicing off the independent vote. How about slicing off 40% of your own party? And if you look at the support for Cruz and Trump in these primaries, you're talking about well in excess of 50% of your own party. So these establishment figures who are saying, like for me, would I support Rubio if you were the nominee? Yes. Would I support Trump if you were the nominee? Yes, reluctantly. Would I support Cruz if you were the nominee? Absolutely. Would I support pretty much anybody if they were the nominee? Yes, because I would support a steaming bowl of horse manure over Hillary Clinton. Gladly. But these folks in the establishment don't want it that way. And it really is very, very frustrating. It really is. It's gross. It's, it's, it's very upsetting because these are the people who are supposed to be our great thought leaders. And then they walk around, oh, we're not elitists. We're not elitists. And people I like, people whose writing I think is great. Kevin Williamson at National Review, not just going after Trump, which is fair game, but saying that his supporters are basically a bunch of rubes who hate everything and, and are racist and hate women and children and, and small puppies. Enough. Just enough, guys. They disagree with you. And they disagree. And again, I've been victimized by the Trumpsters, okay? I don't, for the 1,000th time, I do not support Donald Trump in this primary race. And I've been hit my fair share by the Trumpsters who... The people who are de devotees of Donald Trump are some of the most annoying people on the planet. I'm not talking about people who support him. I'm talking about the people who are fully crazed on board with Trump. I'm talking about the people who, when I spoke at the Nixon Library after the last debate, and I was about to give Donald Trump an A in my debate grades, got up and started screaming at me, we don't want your opinion, right? Wearing Trump t-shirts. Those people are very annoying. But to label everyone who supports Trump, and more than that, anybody who, who supports Cruz, for goodness sake, those people are outliers to the party. They're the ones that we have to fight. It's just, it's just ridiculous. It's just, it's silly and it's ridiculous. And it shows that if it really came down to it, if Ted Cruz were the nominee, I think there are members of the establishment Republican Party who would significantly prefer to see Hillary win than Ted Cruz. And I don't think it's unique to Cruz. I think any significantly conservative candidate would face the same battles because, look, Rubio's not, not conservative. He's 94% conservative. 
according to the American Conservative Union. But when it comes to some of his key votes, he's been movable. And that's what the establishment likes about Rubio. Cruz is not movable. Rubio is movable. Remember, Rubio entered the Senate saying he understood that amnesty was a bad idea, and then immediately within six months, boom, he was pushing amnesty. They feel like they can push Marco Rubio around. They don't feel like they can push Ted Cruz around. They don't feel like they can push Trump around, even though they agree with Trump more than they agree with, with Ted Cruz. All right, well, on the other side of the aisle, Hillary Clinton is doing the oh, poor me routine. Hillary Clinton in 2008, when she started to lose, if you recall all the way back to 2008, it feels like forever ago, but when Hillary Clinton was running in 2008, she lost Iowa. She actually finished third in Iowa. She finished behind Obama and John Edwards. In New Hampshire, as you recall, she had her big crying moment, which, by the way, shows you how stupid American politics has become. In 1968, there was a, a guy named Edmund Muskie. He was the governor of Minnesota, and he was running for the nomination on the Democratic side. And Edmund Muskie was running in New Hampshire, and there was one point at which somebody insulted his wife, and he apparently teared up while he was on the campaign trail. This ended his campaign. He was considered a serious candidate. It ended his campaign. He always maintained he wasn't crying, that snow had sort of hit his face and then started to melt. But it ended his campaign. Hillary in 2008, she cries in New Hampshire. Oh, poor Hillary. What a victim. She's being bullied by that mean Obama and the mean media. And Hillary wins New Hampshire and almost ends up winning the nomination. Well, Hillary's doing that again now. So clip seven, Hillary is, is now staging photo ops with little children. Yesterday we discussed, by the way, how you know Ted Cruz's kids are fair game, but when Hillary Clinton obviously stages photo ops like this, and you'll see it, it's, it's so obviously staged, then all of a sudden it, it's not staged and not mock-worthy at all. Here's Hillary Clinton at, in Iowa Town Hall. What are going to do about the, all this bullying, not just because of just people who want to be mean, but mental and physical and diseases that people have that they're able to live with every day. Do you, can you tell me a little bit more about why that's on your mind? I have asthma, and occasionally I've heard people talking behind my back about not wanting to be, be near me because I have asthma. I mean, people, it's not contagious. I, it's not contagious. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, another She's a grandma. That was really brave. That was really. I know brave. it's sort of odd coming from a person running for president, but I really do think we need more love and kindness in our country. I think we are not treating each other with the respect and the. And the care that we should show toward each other. You see the tearing up there? And she goes for it with the hand. That's why it's important to stand up to bullies wherever they are, and why we shouldn't let anybody bully his way into the presidency. Oh, well, look at that transition. Uh, because that is not who we are as Americans. Oh, that's not who we are as Americans. Okay, everything about this is, is sick making. Every single element of this is absolutely sick making. From the little girl who says she's being bullied about her asthma. Okay, kids, first of all, are cruel and will bully kids about anything. Okay, as somebody who's seriously victimized by bullying, I can tell you. I, I, first of all, the number of kids who I think have been bullied based on asthma. I'm not going to say the little kid's a liar, but I have my doubts that this kid is, is being severely like, thrown in lockers because she has asthma. Like, I, I just don't think that's the case. Okay, but, but 
let's say that she's telling the truth here. Let's say that she's telling the truth, and this wasn't staged at all, that magically a nine-year-old girl gets the microphone to ask Hillary Clinton a question in the front row of her town hall. Let's pretend that none of this happened by happen, that, that none of this happened because it was planned. It all happened by happenstance. And then you get Hillary with her little hug there, and then saying, we need more love and kindness and, and apple pie and ice cream and motherhood. And then everybody starts, yeah, love, kindness, woo, yeah. And then she finishes with, we can't have anyone bully their way into the White House. Your husband sexually harassed people from his position of power, and then you threatened them, Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton, you laughed about defending a child rapist. Hillary Clinton, you are campaigning in Iowa with a woman who sexually abused her own sister. In the last Democratic debate before this one, you said that Republicans, half the country, were your enemies. Love and kindness? I mean, the cynicism here is just overwhelming. It's, it's absolutely appalling. And that, that really shows you... Yeah, the, the, but I guess that this is, I guess, what the establishment right wants the right to do. That we, they want us to to talk about love and kindness, and and we we can't let them cast us as bullies. They're going to cast us as bullies anyway, folks. Okay, it doesn't matter what we do. This is the line. This is the line. It doesn't matter that Hillary Clinton is not just a liar; she's a damn liar. It doesn't matter that Hillary Clinton is one of the worst political bullies of my lifetime and has been for twenty years. She had basically a hit squad inside the Clinton White House to go after all of Bill's. It was the bimbo, the bimbo eruption unit going after all of, all of the, the women that Bill was screwing, both legitimately and illegitimately. It's for her to sit there and lecture us all on bullying. This is what the left does. What the left does is they say that there are individuals who do bad things. Therefore, government has to come in and do bad things to everyone. Right? That's the goal here. Right? You were bullied in school by a mean kid. Well, I think we need more loving kindness, and I as president will fix that. How? How? Are you Jesus? Are you God? Like, well, what do you do? What's your magic solution? Oh, we need more love and kindness. Thank you, Hillary. That that you've you've solved her problem. That little girl will never be bullied again because of her asthma because you said the words love and kindness. What absolute nonsensical, disgusting. Bleh. Okay, well, it's time for some things I like and and some things that I hate. So, first, something that I like. So there's a, there's a great. It's Christmas season, so we'll talk about a great Christian movie, although this one has a bit of a sad ending. Uh, There's a great movie. It was based on a play called The Man for All Seasons. If you've never seen it, it is a great take on the difference between law and morality, uh, and it's it's the, about Sir Thomas More. Now, it's not a full... It's not fully historically accurate about who Thomas More was. It makes Thomas More... He was sainted later, but it makes Thomas More out to be just this wonderful beacon for liberty and truth. Um, and there were some good things about Thomas More. There were some not-so-good things about Thomas More. If you read Thomas More's Utopia, uh, he had some, some rather tyrannical tendencies, but... The film itself is great, and it has some important things to say about the nature of law and what government can do and what government cannot do, and God's law being higher than man's law. So it's a really good movie, and Paul Schofield gives a tremendous performance. He's a really great actor. Uh, Schofield's great in everything. There's an audio version that he did of King Lear that's tremendous and that you should pick up if you have a chance. Okay, now on to things that I hate. On Christmas, the NBA plays about five games on Christmas because this is what we do. All of our holidays now center around these shared cultural moments, and many of them are sports, because you thought, as a sports fan, and I watch a lot of sports, as a sports fan, one of the things I hate is when politics now infects my sports. I don't want to hear your political point of view. I don't want to hear about Black Lives Matter. I don't want to hear Bob Costas jabbering about gun control. All I want to do is watch people hit each other over an oblong ball, or watch a couple of guys throw a ball through a hoop, or watch someone throw a spherical object past another guy swinging a wooden bat, right? The... the, the, the Simple needs. Is it so much to ask? It is. So it turns out that Everytown for Gun Safety, which is an organization that was started up in the aftermath 
of the Sandy Hook shootings. Every town for gun safety, they have now cut a new public service announcement pushing for gun control, and they're using NBA stars. So the, the NBA stars that you're going to see here are Steph Curry, who is the best player in the league right now. And you're also going to see Joachim Noah, who used to be good, but it's sort of a has-been for the Chicago Bulls. And you'll see Chris Paul, who is the point guard for the Los Angeles Clippers. And you'll see Carmelo Anthony, who's become kind of an afterthought on the, on the horrible New York Knicks. So you'll see all of them appear in here talking about gun control. This is supposed to air consistently through all five games all over Christmas. Here is the ad. I heard about a shooting involving a three-year-old girl over the summer. My daughter Riley is that age. There was a point when I felt that I was going to die. My parents used to always say a bullet didn't have a name on it. Someone put a bullet in the back of my 14-year-old son's head. The gun should never be an option. We're Americans. We don't have to live like this. We can all make a difference. In the United States, 8088 people die of gun violence every day. We can end gun violence. We can end gun And then underneath it says a message from the NBA and its players. Presumably not all of its players, because a lot of its players own guns. In fact, a couple of years ago, Gilbert Arenas of the Washington Wizards was suspended for the league because he and, and a guy named Javaris Critterden, I think, they got into almost a gunfight in the locker room. They both bought guns into, into the, in, brought guns into the locker room. But the reason that I single this out is because you actually have an opportunity. If you're going to do a PSA about gun violence, this would be a golden opportunity to do a PSA that was actually useful. If, when it says in the United States, 88 people die of gun violence every single day, the vast majority of the people dying of gun violence are not dying in, in mass shootings. It's not like Sandy Hook. Okay, Sandy Hook is actually a relatively statistically rare occurrence. The vast majority of people who die in the United States from gun violence are killed by people that they know, people from their community. They're not killed in random acts of violence. They're killed because gun violence is just like every other type of violence. It is a crime, right? And so they are killed unfortunately, disproportionately, too, in the black community, wildly disproportionately in the black community, right? In the black community, according to the Centers for Disease Control, every other subgroup of the American population, the most common cause of death is car accident. Everyone dies the most of car accident until you get really old. So if you're a young person, your most likely cause of death is you're texting and driving and someone plows into you and you're dead. If you are black, if you're a young black man between the ages of 20 and 24, you are four times, not just more likely, four times more likely to die of gun homicide than you are to die in a car accident. Okay, that's wildly disproportionate. According to Bloomberg, quote, a young black man is nearly five times more likely to be killed by a gun than a young white man. By, you have to read in between the words here. More likely to be killed by a gun wielded by another young black man because the vast majority of murders in any race are committed by members of their own race. This is true for blacks. It's true for whites, although more whites are killed by blacks than blacks are killed by whites. A young black man is nearly five times more likely to be killed by a gun than a young white man, 13 times more likely than an Asian American man. These numbers, dramatic as they are, actually understate the problem. If a black person is killed by a gun, it is judged a homicide 82% of the time. For the broad population, and this is also included in that statistic, most guns are ruled accidental or the result of suicide. Only 34% of gun deaths are attributed to murder. So when they say 88 people are, die every day from gun violence, they're including in that statistic somebody who shoots themselves in the head. And while it turns out that if you want to commit suicide, you can, right? I mean, the gun is not the real instrument here. Who's the perp? It isn't the gun. It's you putting the gun to the back of your head and then, or the side of your head and shooting yourself or in your mouth or whatever. So it's, but wouldn't this be a great opportunity? So young black men die in disproportionate numbers from gun violence. As it so happens, as it so happens, a vastly disproportionate share of the NBA watching population are young black men. Okay, young black men watch an enormous amount of NBA. According to Nielsen, 
black viewers of the NBA have increased their watch time 63%. They've, they've almost doubled it, apparently, from 2003 to 2013. Black viewers spend an average, an average, not, not, you know, a, not a maximum, an average of 844 minutes every season compared to 290 minutes for white viewers. And the NBA fan base is disproportionately young. Black viewers aged 18 to 34, this is the key statistic, right? Young black men who are more likely to die in gun crimes averaged 884 minutes of NBA watching that season, which is how many hours? That would be 13, 14, almost 15 hours of, of NBA every season. And probably on Christmas, there's a good shot a lot of people are going to be watching. They're off of work. They don't have things to do. Compared with only 392 minutes for white viewers of the same age group. So in other words, you have a disproportionate black audience watching black superstars talk about guns. Wouldn't this be a nice time to talk about maybe don't shoot each other? Wouldn't that be a better pitch than we need legislation to push background checks? Wouldn't that? But, but again, this is not about making anybody's life better. It's about feeling good about yourself. If you, because political correctness gets people killed. This would be an opportunity to save some lives. One of the things that they could also push, for that matter, would be, hey, if you're a young black man watching this, if you're going to knock somebody up, marry the mother. Would that be so much to ask? Like, seriously. And the reason that I say young black men is because young black men, wildly disproportionately, are not marrying the mothers of their children. And what's amazing about this particular ad and what it shows, it's kind of cool, actually. Steph Curry, right, the, the first guy in this ad, he grew up in a two-parent household. His father's name was Dell, and Dell Curry played in the NBA, and he grew up in pretty privileged circumstances. Joachim Noah, who's the guy who has the curly hair and kind of the scrawny beard for the Chicago Bulls, Joachim Noah, his father was a French tennis star, and his mother was Miss Sweet in 1978, and he grew up in a home with, with both of his parents involved. And Chris Paul grew up in a home with both his parents involved, and he did summer, during summers, he would work for his granddad at a gas station. Solid family structure. And all three of these guys are pros, and they're in the NBA. In fact, the only person there who's, who's, who didn't have this sort of family structure is Carmelo Anthony, who grew up in the Red Hook projects in New York City and apparently saw dead bodies on a pretty regular basis. Wouldn't he be speaking up in favor of a less violent community, in favor of a, of a community where people got married to, to mom? Wouldn't that be better? Wouldn't that be, and by the way, Steph Curry is apparently, by all reports, a really good guy. He's married to, to the mother of his kids. I mean, he's, he's not leaving her high and dry. So what, what exactly, why is the message, everybody who's watching the NBA, call up President Obama and tell the government to take away people's guns. Right? Why is that the message? The answer is, of course, as always, as always. When it comes to the left, achieving good results is secondary to achieving good feelings. Achieving good results is secondary to achieving good feelings, and it doesn't matter. If you have a group of people, you know, it's the same thing that happened when I was down at Ote Ranch High School. If I have a group of poor kids in front of me, I have two choices. I can either tell them it's the fault of the system, lobby your legislator to give your parents more money, or I can say, make your way in the world, make good decisions, here are some good decisions you can make, and you won't be poor, your life is in your hands. Which is a better message? Mine didn't go over as well because it ain't quite as friendly. And this is the problem with the political debate right now is that the people on the left are willing to exploit people so long as it makes them feel good, and people on the right typically are not. Okay, I promised you a bit of a surprise at the end of this Ben Shapiro show. And so we'll fade out uh, doing something that my family used to do as sort of a prank. As you can see, I'm not just Jewish, I am super Jew. And, uh, and so my family, on Christmas Eve, when we go to people's houses, we would knock on the specifically Jews, we would knock on their door with my sister's friends, uh, we would knock on their door, and my sisters and I, I have three younger sisters, and my sisters and I uh, would sing Silent Night in four-part harmony. We'd actually carol all the other Jews in the neighborhood. 
as sort of a joke. But it, the, the, and obviously it's a joke in the sense that I don't believe in Jesus as Christ. I believe that Jesus existed. I believe he was a Jew. I, as I explained yesterday, the Jewish vision of Jesus is not the Christian vision of Jesus, which is why I am a Jew. Right? There are distinctions between religions that are important. But it is very, very important in the United States to be grateful for the American brand of Christianity, which has been a boon for the world and a boon for the Jews. And so we will fade out as I sing Silent Night. My sister played an elf, I think, when she was in public school, actually, in the Christmas play. And I remember I was also in, in the Christmas play when we were allowed to have Christmas plays in public school. Uh, so I do know virtually all of the words to Silent Night. I brought them up in front of me so I don't have, like, a, a national anthem slip up. But we'll at least sing the, we'll at least sing the first verse. Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright, round yon virgin mother and child. We'll get to more on this in just one second first. Pure Talk believes in American values, and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick-charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving. <laughs> 